Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of the kick-ass Vanessa Michael Monroe thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And this is a Hack the Craft episode. Oh, man. And that means there's no chit-chat? <laughs> no chit-chat. <laughs> but the good thing about this kind of an episode is that we're also recording it in video, so you can watch along with us as Taylor's going through all this. You can find the video on Taylor's Patreon page, which is? Patreon.com slash Taylor Stevens. And I'll have a link to it in the show notes as soon as that video is posted. You don't need to be a patron to have access to it. You just need to go to Patreon to watch it. So, with that as background, let's get started on part two of this series. Okay. So, last week, uh, I should back up a little bit. So, we are going over some material that was sent in to us by Amelia. And in the first episode of this, we looked at it big picture to see what areas needed help. Instead of just going into it as a line edit, we the main things that we saw needed help at the time were getting the descriptions and the characters lined up in the right order. Is that, am I remembering this correctly? My, I've, I've slept since then. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's correct. Yes. And it, it was such that there, there were things missing where the reader just didn't have a sense of place or how to see things that the character was seeing. There were things that were missing. And so I offered it to, I sent it back to the author and she gave me a rewrite. And almost everything that I addressed, she fixed. But I felt like there was a way to take it one level up. And as I mentioned in the last episode, when I do pieces like this, I'm looking at them from two angles. One is how can I be of as much help as possible to the author who's sending in the piece, and how can I be as much help to the audience as a whole? And we've done a lot of line editing on this show, but we haven't necessarily gone and actually completely rewritten a piece. So I think that might actually be the best use of our audience's participation in time. Uh, what the author chooses to do with this is entirely up to her. She might much prefer her original version, and that's totally okay. What I wanted to do was take this and use it as an example of how to do a rewrite. And the reason that I felt this piece would be a good opportunity to do that is because it is the opening of the book. And so I had to get a lot of stuff straight in my own head in order to do this. So I wrote a lot of notes. <laughs> so I'm just going to read through some of my notes. That way everything's going to be organized and you're not going to hear me stutter and stammer as much as I normally do. So, because I do a lot. I hear myself when I'm editing the videos. I'm like, oh man. <laughs> so setting scenes can be really difficult and chapter openings in general can be hard. But first chapter openings are doubly so. They're, they're the worst. And I struggle a lot with chapter openings and especially book openings. And when I'm really struggling to get that opening to read the way that I want it to read, and I just can't make it work, I go back to these questions. Because I find that often when a scene is not working and it feels like it's missing, especially that chapter opening, it's because something is just not there. You're missing something as author. You're not either you don't have it visualized in your head or 
you're just sort of writing and it's turning out vague. And so these questions help me get a firm grasp on what I'm missing. And they are, whose eyes are we seeing this through? Where are we? Who are the characters? What is the conflict? And what are the key points this scene must convey? Now, there's one question that's not on this list that is also very critical. And the reason it's not on this list is because these are my questions to help me. And I already have number six down pretty well that it doesn't even come up in the equation. But it is, what is the character doing? Is that character in motion? And so much of storytelling is through character in motion, description, dialogue, all of these things. Character in motion is the foundation for all of this. And that's what these questions are meant to help us, help me with. So with those questions as a guide, we're going to read the original. And we can do this and still fit it into a single podcast because Emmy was generous enough to send only 350, 400 words. So we have the space. So here's the original that we worked over on last week's episode. Yelena peeked out of the transporter window at the twilight haze above. Even as the storm rolled in, dimming the lights of the few stars still visible after the quakes, the sky had its usual ghostly glow. Half hidden behind the white spider web cover of the clouds, the moon shone bright. What would she see that was new? The long oval shape of the space station spinning, no doubt. From here, it only seemed stuck, plastered like a neon figurine one could glue to the ceiling. Nothing new was up there. Just looking up wouldn't evoke any emotion she hadn't felt before. Only this same dull pang. Just like looking up. Gazing was emptiness, a question without an answer, so it was better to look down. Raindrops fell on her hair as soon as she stepped outside the transporter, but she didn't bother hiding under an umbrella. In this humidity, she would get drenched just by being outside. Her heels clicked every time she made a decisive step toward the house. Buona sera. The compulsory greeting in Italian was polite and detached. The pair waiting in front of her house shared a confused look. Were they expecting something else? Hi, the taller one said. Blonde bangs fell in his eyes like he was set on reproducing a boy band look. Identical red uniforms, unfamiliar golden markings across the sleeves, and a greeting in English. Tourists or promoters. Yelena didn't twitch, taking a moment to place them. We're looking for Yelena Russo, he continued. Something stirred inside her, but Yelena pushed it down. She had met promoters before. Turning them down was easy. Sending her signature snort their way, followed by a bored expression, would suffice. It painted her as stuck up, but why would that matter? She'd never stick around long enough to see their faces again. Still, this time there was something unsettling in finding them at her doorstep. She wasn't someone they'd fished out of the crowd. She was a target, and that begged the question, could Adeline's cover have been blown? I'm afraid I must disappoint, Elena swallowed. The tense look in her eyes must be giving her away. I'm not looking to buy. So we really wanted to, um, the navel gazing was an issue, and there were a the few other things. So um, the author did a great job at tackling all of those, and here is the rewrite. Yelena peeked out of the park transporter at the two silhouettes in front of the house. Despite the brewing storm, they didn't seem to have any intention of leaving. The sturdy, dark-haired one sat on the steps, which still looked damp from the day's drizzle, and the tall, skinny, blonde one paced back and forth. One, two, turn. One, two, turn. She sunk back in the seat. 
The twilight haze above enveloped Yelena. The stars, the few that were still visible after the quakes, had dimmed, and a spider web of cloud cover now half hid the moon. The glowing space station was spinning, but from here it only seemed stuck, like a neon figurine glued to a ceiling. It made her fight a, lo- a growl in her throat. Gazing up was emptiness, a question without an answer, so it was better to look down. Stalling was no use. With the push of a button, the glass side door flipped up, and Yelena slid out. Raindrops clung to her hair, but she didn't bother with an umbrella. Not wanting to get drenched was an excellent excuse to offer them for not stopping to chat. Her heels clicked every time she made a decisive step toward the house. The pair by the door perked up at the sight of her approaching. They lined up side by side like a welcome committee. Buona sera, Yelena said. The compulsory greeting in Italian was polite and detached. The two guys shared a confused look. Were they expecting something else? Hi, the taller one said. We're looking for Yelena Russo. Blonde bangs fell in his eyes, like he was set on reproducing a boy band look. Identical red uniforms, unfamiliar golden markings across the sleeves in a greeting in English. These two were no lost tourists. Unease stirred inside her, but Yelena pushed it down. She'd met promoters before. Turning them down was simple. Sending her signature snort their way, followed by a bored expression, would suffice. It painted her as stuck up. But why would that matter? She'd never stick around long enough to see their faces again. Still, this time, there was something unsettling in finding them at her doorstep. She wasn't someone they'd fished out of the crowd. She was a target. She couldn't shake the bad thought that stuck into her mind. Could Adeline's cover have been blown? I'm afraid I must disappoint, Elena said. Her eyes flickered to the side. I'm not looking to buy. So in my opinion, that was much improved. We didn't really have the navel-gazing we could. We had a lot more sense of who was saying what to whom, and the the character was in motion a lot sooner, and it sort of painted a much clearer picture of what was happening. Much less confusion. So very very good job. Um, so now let's combine the material from both of those versions and run everything we know through the questions. Right? Whose eyes are we seeing this through? Well, we're seeing it through Yelena's eyes. Where are we? We're at her home, to which she's just returned. Who are the characters? Present on the page are Yelena and two male promoters. Off page is Adeline, the character driving the conflict in this scene. What is the conflict? The promoters are waiting for Yelena on her own doorstep. This means she's been specifically targeted. She doesn't know why and is worried that if they've come for her here, it means Adeline's cover might be blown. What are the key points this scene must convey? And here's where we start to run into trouble. World building. We're in a foreign world with a foreign sky. There's a space station, and this world has promoters. In this scene, they are young men, boy band defines their demographic, and their position authority power could be threatening to Yelena. What's our place? Yelena is returning home. But here's things we don't know about this place that would be helpful. Is her home small? Large, rich, poor, does she live alone or with parents or roommates? Who provided this house for her? All of these details, even if they don't show up on the page, would allow us to speak to how Yelena feels about her station in life, which would create depth of character. Character. From the author's notes, we know that Yelena has been abandoned as a baby in space and then adopted on Earth. Now she tries hard to avoid anything space-related that might remind her of the unanswered question in her past. We won't necessarily see these specific details on the page, but they give us her frame of mind. Setting. It's evening. There's a storm coming. It has started raining. 
The character returns home via transporter and finds true promoters on her doorstep. Other than this, we're blind on setting. We have no sense of what home is or how it looks. She's parked the transporter. She's making decisive steps toward her home. They are waiting for her. How does she see them first and they don't notice her? This absence of detail can leave scenes feeling very empty and make the character feel void. To be able to show character in motion, we need to have a sense of the space or world around the character. So for the sake of story, we're going to have to make stuff up. It's That's not in either of the author's versions. But we're missing some of the pieces we need to even make stuff up. We don't have any sense of how this world functions. Transporters, do they fly? Hover? Are they an equivalent to cars in our world where many people own their own? Or is this similar to shared transportation? If people own personal transporters, then they need parking spaces for them. Are these parking spaces like helipads with an expanse of green between landing and location? Carports uptight to the location? Parking lots with a ton of bare asphalt? Is these types of finer details that allow us to set the scene using character in motion instead of going into a bunch of description? And we're going to have to wing it. Harder still, we have a description of the sky, but absolutely nothing to guide us around what exists on the ground. We don't even have an idea of what this doorstep these young men are waiting on looks like. Is this home in the flatlands? Mountains? Hills? Is this urban city? Suburbia? Farmland? Is it green, brown, blue? Are there trees? Or is this a bustling concrete jungle? Is it quiet, loud? All of this is missing. And these are the tiny details that give us time and space. And since they're missing, we're going to have to just make them up. Before we do, I want to show you an example of how this use of detail gets applied in real life and why those five who, where, what questions matter. And to make this as similar, as relatable to the material as possible, we should use an opening paragraph. And the most recent one I've got is the pre-edit, pre-copy edit version of Liar's Paradox. So that's what we're going to use. First, we'll read the entire paragraph, then do a line-by-line breakdown. So, Liar's Paradox, Chapter 1. Quiet, gentrified neighborhood in a cloud-covered sky at 2 in the morning. A perfect mix for breaking and entering. Would have been, anyway if the house itself hadn't been lit up like an Omani oil field, every window eating shadows from the neighborhood yards the same way flare burn-off stole night from the deep desert dunes. So, he sat in his car three houses down, hidden in the dark beneath a 30-foot live oak, watching the front door and debating the options, none of them good. Now here's what that looks like line by line in terms of information and sensory detail relayed to the reader. Quiet, gentrified neighborhood we get an immediate generalized snapshot of the type of area we're in. And a cloud-covered sky. We have atmosphere at two in the morning. We know what time it is. A perfect mix for breaking and entering. We know why we are here in this place at this time. Would have been, anyway, if the house itself hadn't been lit up like an Omani oil field, every window eating shadows from the neighboring yards the same way flare burn-off stole night from the deep desert dunes. We are inside the character's head, and through his eyes, we see the house is lit up. It's implied he didn't expect the house to be lit, which is an immediate conflict. We know absolutely nothing about him, or the world he walks in, or the role he'll play in this story. But the comparison to Omani oil fields and flare burn-off versus, say, lit up like a Christmas tree, tells us he's been places and things, sees things, and relates to the world a little differently than most. So he sat in his car three houses down. We know where his physical body is within time and space. Hidden in the dark beneath a 30-foot live oak. We know where the car is in relation to the house he's casing. Watching the front door and debating the options. We are in the present moment and know what he is doing. None of them good. 
We understand his frame of mind and have confirmed the immediate conflict. By paragraph end, we know absolutely nothing about who this character is or what this story is about, and yet with those 86 words, we do have a sense of character plus time plus place plus conflict, and we're ready to roll. So now, let's try and replicate something similar using both of the author's drafts and our scene highlights. We do that through character in motion. Now, here's my disclaimer. Always <laughs> got to throw this in here. I do not have the same amount of time to work and rework this piece as I would on my own drafts. So this is not an example of what should be. It's an idea of what could be for structure, like where and how to put the pieces that will give us a solid first draft. And from there, we go back and edit and tweak and fine tune it at will. Now, since we're missing details of what this fort planet looks like on the ground, we'll have to create our own. And basically, that just means picking an idea and running with it. So let's say something like, all right. This is a space settlement that has grown to tens of thousands of people. It's an uncluttered urban area with wide public spaces that consist of mostly construction material, like a, for, a planetary version of concrete, and structured green areas between commercial and residential zones. The primary commercial zone is in the center, where industry, business, government, and education services take place, and residential zones bleed from the center outward. Each zone is its own little town thing, in which small, modular, tightly clustered residences are stacked using trees and asymmetrical garden landscaping to provide a sense of personal space. Yelena lives alone in a ground floor unit with what, within one of these residential zones. She's arriving home via transporter, which is the primary means of getting to the settlement center and back. The transporters hover versus fly and our community property parked in community parking, somewhat like apartment complex parking. That's our setting, most of which will never show up on the page, but we need it so that we keep things consistent and logical as we guide character, thought, and movement and add texture. To be clear, the setting we created doesn't matter. You could make this an urban hellscape or paradise or a wilderness outpost. The concept is the same. We need to know what the character sees and understand the world they walk in. Through that, we can put character in motion. Character plus motion plus inner dialogue equals description. So here's the rewrite. Yelena guided the transporter to the dock nearest home and shut down the controls. The belly settled and the lock disengaged. She stole a peek up into the twilight haze. The stars had dimmed, those few still visible after the quakes, and a spider web of cloud cover now half hid the moon. The storm would hit soon. She nudged the release button. The glass side door flipped up. She slid her legs around toward the exit and paused at the threshold, eyes glued to the sky, gaze stuck on the space station spinning in orbit. From here, it looked like a long glow-in-the-dark oval glued to the ceiling, and seeing it, a low growl escaped her throat. She grabbed her bag, slid to the ground, and stomped past the dock, wishing she'd parked in the usual spot around the bend and taken the longer path between buildings where the stacked gardens cut into the sky view and spared her from catching an unwanted glimpse and the painful reminders that came with it. Trying to beat the storm had cost her this. Her heels clicked with each decisive step. The first of the rain began to fall. She didn't bother with an umbrella. In this humidity, just being outdoors was enough to get drenched. The wind gusted and the water grew thicker and heavier. She kept her eyes low to avoid the sky. Lost in thought, she nearly missed movement in the gaps between dwarf fruit trees on the lower garden that separated her home from the neighbors, but seeing it now, she hesitated. There were two people near her door, one seated on the stairs, the other pacing back and forth. Despite the coming storm, they seemed in no hurry to leave. She was in no mood to talk, but the longer she delayed out here in the open, the wetter and wetter she'd get, so she started up again. The pair at the door caught sight of her. They lined up side by side like mismatched welcome committee. 
one tall, one short, one blonde, one brunette, both of them in identical red uniforms with unfamiliar golden markings across the sleeves. They watched her like they'd been waiting specifically for her. She slowed as she neared and offered the obligatory Italian greeting. Buonasera, she said. The two exchanged a confused look. Perhaps they'd expected something else. The tall blonde one said, hi. Bangs fell in his eyes, and he brushed the hair aside as if he was set on imitating Bentley, the cute one in the latest boy band craze. More notable was his use of English. English pegged him as a tourist or a promoter, and tourists didn't randomly show up in residential zones this far from the settlement center. We're looking for Yelena Russo, he said. Uneasiness ran up and down her spine. She pushed it away. She'd met promoters before. Turning them down was simple enough. Send her signature snort their way and follow it with a bored expression. It painted her as stuck up, but that didn't matter. She'd never see them again. But this time felt different. There was something unsettling in finding them at her doorstep. They hadn't fished her out of crowd. She was their target, and that raised a question she couldn't shake. Could Adeline's cover have been blown? Tension filled her chest. She tried hard to keep from showing it on her face. I'm afraid I must disappoint, she said, and pushed past them to get under the eaves out of the rain and closer to her front door. I'm not looking to buy. That's, that's what I've got. It feels, it feels completely different. That version feels completely different. There was a subtle difference between the initial version and the second version. And, and this version, you know, the sense of place and, and what you were, the addition of a few lines just made it all so much more clear. Because as a, a listener and reader, since I'm both listening to you read and reading it, each time from, from the initial back in, in the first show last week, and this one, I just had this sense of not knowing where we were and not knowing what was going on. And all of that went away with, by, by the addition of those few lines and, and really understanding uh, the information uh, that you laid out at the beginning of the show. You know, whose so eyes are we seeing this from? Where are we? Who are the characters? Et cetera, et cetera. So what's really interesting to me about the before and the after on this is Anything that I could use the author's own words on, I used. Um, I might have tweaked it a little bit here or there, moved things around a little bit, but I used the author's words. So when you think about what I did add, it was location, it was place, it was the finer details, but there's no description. Like if you look at this, there's no place where I'm going, this looked like that, and this looked like that, or whatever. Everything is told through character in motion. But you cannot have character in motion if there's no world for the character to interact with. Now, the setting that we made up could be completely, utterly different than what was actually intended. But that just goes to show that it doesn't matter. As long as you have the setting as the author in your head and you use that and the details of the character's world and you see through the character's eyes and you guide that character through the world through what the character is seeing, then the reader will have a sense of place and, and understand. And, you know, if, if somebody had come and read this segment first without all our little, here's the setting and this is what it looks like, they wouldn't have as great a picture in their mind because they didn't get an info dump beforehand, mm -hmm. but they would still see that character in motion and the character is what matters, not the place. But we need the place to get the character to matter. 
and I really appreciated the the subtle way that y you we got into her mind the the mindset of I don't like space. You know, she'd look down, so she didn't want to look up at the sky. Things like that. The subtle way you got that point across. That was and it was cool. it was in the original too, but in the original it was navel gazing, and. We took that navel gazing and just put it into motion, character in motion, character in motion. That should be like a mantra that we have on our computer screens or our desks, because without character in motion, there is no story. There's just talking. All right. Now, I've got a quiz for our listeners out there. Longtime listeners, raise your hand if you recognize those bullet points that Taylor put up at the beginning of the screen. Can you pop them up again? <laughs> yes, I have to find them. <laughs> Give me a second. So raise your hand. Think back. Have you ever seen these before? Have you, have you heard of them before? I don't see anyone raising their hand. Taylor, do you see anyone <laughs> raising their hand? <laughs> I am, I'm most certain that there are people out there raising their hands. I don't see them, though. They're probably in Texas, and that's, that's why you sense that they're raising their hands. This, this is the information that you have on that 3 by 5 card that sits on your desk and that I have sitting on my desk. So as you were first talking through those, I looked down <laughs> at my card. And then when you said, I have five of these on here, and I didn't put the sixth because it's second nature to me, I quickly scribbled the sixth one down there because it's not second nature to me. So I now have, I now have six things on my list. Well, good. Um, maybe one day I'll get these printed up and they can be goodies that I give out to my patrons. I think that would be kind here's of neat. My, here's my card, my question card. But then the problem will be it'll probably change and then I'll be like, here's the updated question card. Well, whatever it would be, it would look better than my hand scribbled awful. And sometimes I have to just squint to see what, what does that say? Oh, yeah. What is the conflict? So that's it. This was like the quickest. This is really great when there's like 350 words to work with. So, it yes, makes it so thank you easier. very much for sending in such a, a concise scene and, uh, you know, some great raw material to work with. Yep. Thank you very much. And I just want to say that at this point... I am out. I have no more editing material to work with. So if you guys enjoy these editing podcasts, and I know that many of you do because I get a lot of email from um, even people who discover the show through them, um, the only way we can do them is if I have the material to work on. So bless your brave hearts for being willing to you know, put your raw material out to the world. You can do it anonymously. Um, when you send me material, I will send you a questionnaire that covers things like what name should I use? If you want to be anonymous, it's okay. What are the main issues you're looking for help on? And so I'm not just going to embarrass you by putting something out here if you don't want people to know that you wrote it. But I do need material if we want to continue doing these shows. And this is the open call for anybody who wants to send it in. Woohoo! All right, let's do it. And so that wraps up this Tuesday's show. And remember, this show, especially the Hack the Craft episodes, are sponsored by you guys. And you sponsor the show by being patrons of Taylor uh, at patreon.com slash Taylor Stevens. Any level that you can join to help to support the work she's doing would be greatly appreciated by her and all of us that enjoy the show on a weekly basis. So thank you for considering that. And check it out when you're there watching this week's video. We will be back in your ear again next Tuesday 
but without the video. See you guys next week. <laughs>